All right. If you'd turn with me to Titus. Titus. Titus 2. A few weeks ago, um, Pastor Andy called me up. He said, hey, would you be willing to preach this passage? I said, sure, I'd love to. Which is, uh, it's a fairly easy passage to preach. It's all orthopraxy, right? So uh, most teaching we can divide up into one of two categories, orthodoxy, which is basically correct thinking, and orthopraxy, which is correct practice. And orthopraxy is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, if the Bible tells you don't murder, what's the deeper meaning here? Don't murder. Um, So I think it's a fairly straightforward passage. However, here's the challenge with it. Even though it's a very straightforward passage, guess what? It's straightforward and straight against our culture. And we like to pretend some of the things that are in here aren't in here or don't mean the things that they they say. And we like to pretend that um, we can forget about them. And that's simply not the case. So as we journey through this passage together today, I want you to keep something in mind. Every culture carries with it certain philosophical notions. And every culture not focused and not founded on God's truth and God's word will necessarily hold within itself false ideas about truth, the nature of reality, how we know the things that we know, and how we're supposed to live our lives. If you want to use the big fancy academic terms, we would say every culture holds within itself ideas about truth, metaphysics, epistemology, and morality. And Timothy and Titus both, and especially, of course, Titus today because we're going through it, lay that out very, very clearly. Whenever the gospel, I want you to keep this in mind, whenever the gospel penetrates into a culture, it necessarily confronts the false ideologies of that culture. The gospel is confrontational by nature. It will be offensive by nature because it tells wicked, sinful people like us that we are wrong. And an arrogant, proud heart wants to hear anything except, I'm wrong. But it is. The gospel must go to war with and overcome the errors of thought. The gospel must change the way a person thinks. That's the very nature of discipleship, after all. The word disciple literally means pupil or student. So for the gospel to change the way a person thinks, it must confront the lies and errors of the culture still present in a disciple's mind. Boy, this is going to make me loud, isn't it? When a person is regenerated, they are translated out of the culture they're in and into Christ's kingdom. Okay? The saint has now been taken out of darkness and translated into the kingdom of light. However, discipleship is the sanctifying process whereby the culture of darkness that is still in them is driven out. That is to say this, when you are born again, you're taken out of a culture of darkness and put into Christ's kingdom, which is light. And for the rest of your life, as you are being discipled, we are now trying to get the darkness out of you. We've gotten you out of the darkness, now we've got to get the darkness out of you. Listen, you have areas in your mind that have been dominated by the culture that you've lived in your whole life, that you've grown up in, and Christ tells us that's got to change. Guess what? So do I. And you always will. You you want the bad news? You will never arrive. You're not going to be Jesus Jr. There will never be a day in your life where you'll be able to wake up and go, man, I got this thing down pat. There's, 
There's nothing else for me to work on. I just got to kick it in neutral and just keep coasting. That day will never come. And frankly, I think part of the reason that we have some of the troubles that we have, especially in the Reformed groups, is that we think somehow that day will come. I'm still being tempted by sin. I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, and I'm still tempted by sin. What kind of Christian am I? Uh, You're a saved sinner. And you're going to be tempted by sin the rest of your life. You will never come to the day where you've just got it all down. It's done. I've got the work of the work of grace is so perfect in my heart that I'm no longer tempted by sin. It's not going to happen. And what that means is this. You're going to have to go to war against the culture that you're in. And you're going to have to go to war not just against the culture that you're in, but the culture that's in you. You understand? Regeneration takes the saint out of the old culture. Discipleship is the process of driving that old culture back out of the saint. Many times it's a painful process because we have to turn away from the cultural trappings we've grown up in or become accustomed to, and frankly, we love. The truth of the matter is there are parts of our culture and our trappings that are not biblical, but we like them. And what happens when Christ comes into my heart is that he now burns a holy fire in me to hate those things that don't please him and to begin the war. There's a war in my heart, and there's a war in yours too. Many times it's turning away from the cultural idioms we've grown to love, but it's entirely necessary if we want our life to bear fruit for the gospel of Christ. A disciple must change the way that they think. Why do I have this Greek word up here? Metanoia. Metanoia. Because that's the Greek word for repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Meta is to change, like metamorphosis. Change form. Morph means form. Metamorph is to change form. Metanoia. Noia comes from the Greek word gnosis. The Gnostics. You ever heard the Gnostics? Well, in Greek it would be the Gnostics, but we like to take liberties with our Greek. What were the Gnostics? They were those that purported to have secret knowledge. Gnosis or gnosis means knowledge. Metanoia means change your knowledge or literally change your thinking. Before your actions can change, your thinking must. The process of changing our our thinking is called repentance. Literally, it means to change the way we think. Titus challenges us to do just that. It challenges us to live in a way that's odds with our surrounding culture to oppose the godless culture around us and our manner of thought and deed. It opposes idleness. It opposes entitlement. It opposes feminism. It opposes fornication. It opposes tribalism. It opposes racism. It opposes loose morality. Basically, it opposes everything that our modern culture is, and it espouses everything our modern culture is not. It challenges us to think and act differently from the darkness around us. Slide, please. All right. Let me show you where we're at here. Titus, of course, is Paul's letter. It's written to Titus. Where was Titus at? Well, at the time, Titus was in Crete. That's way down here. This is a modern-day map. Obviously, this is not how the world was divided up in Paul's time, but I want you to know where we're talking about, okay? Uh, One more slide, please. If we focus in down here, this is basically Greece that Paul knew. This is Crete. One more, if you will. Here's Crete. Beautiful place. Crete is not real big. 
It's an island. It is, push down if you would, this square right here is the size of, on this map, is the same size as the Oklahoma Panhandle. The Panhandle of Oklahoma is roughly 166 miles long, 34 miles wide. That is about the same size as the island of Crete. Crete goes from 7.5 miles wide up to 37 miles wide, and it's about 160 miles long. It's not real big, but it's still big enough to have some very sizable colonies. That's, in fact, where um, the Minoan culture came from, if you know about the Minoans. Uh, they were their own culture, basically. They were, uh, even at the, time, at the time of the expansion of Greece and the Etruscans and, then, of course, the Greeks and then the Romans after that, Cretans, the Cretans kind of had their own subculture down here. And frankly, it became very well known for a few things, which Paul lays out for us. Crete was an island paradise, still is, island paradise. It is gorgeous. You'll notice it's surrounded by a bunch of this stuff, water. Let me tell you why that's a big deal, because if you're in a mid-latitude and you're surrounded by water, you get to take advantage of something called the high-specific heat or the high heat of vaporization of water. It means it stabilizes your air temperature. You don't have super hot days and you don't have super cold nights. That's nice. Why do you have super hot days and super cold nights in the desert? There's, there's no water there to regulate or moderate the air temperature. So what that means is this. This island was basically, it was a paradise. It was a beautiful place. And it became basically the playground of the rich. So if you can think of Corinth, you remember we talked about Corinth a few weeks ago? If you can think about Corinth, that's Crete. If it feels good, man, do it. Uh, in fact, from about 200 B.C. on, they had a real problem with piracy. Piracy by the Cretans. Hey, you get, you get double money if you can go out there and hijack the ship of the rich people coming to your island, take their money. And then when they get to your island, you get to charge them again. <laughs> it's a great scheme, man. They had such problems with piracy that it was finally the Romans that came in and had to put it down. Okay, so... That's kind of the background that we're talking about here. One more, if you would. Oh, well, hold on. So Fairhaven here, this is where, um, just give you some background. Remember, Paul was in Crete for about three weeks, and he was lodged in Fairhaven. Fairhaven is a nice little port here. You can see this is the north. Typically, um, ships would come through from this direction, and they would either stop here, Kenosis, and come this way, or they would come around the back side of the island, and you would lodge here in Fairhaven, especially if it was really nasty, if it was storm season, because you've, you've basically got this, uh, this windbreak, if you will, right? And so they stayed there for three weeks. So what do you think they were doing? What do you think Paul's doing? We're talking about Apostle Paul, probably the greatest evangelist to ever come through Christianity. What do you think he was doing for three weeks there? He's <laughs> telling people about Jesus, isn't he? There were Jewish colonies already on Crete. So it's probable, that's what we think happened, is Paul went to, the, obviously, the Jewish uh, the colonies, the synagogues. What did he do? He reasoned with them about the scriptures, right? And guess what? People got born again. Well, now you've got a problem. You've got people that are born again, but who's going to lead them? Who's going to disciple them? By the way, we do the same thing. That's Christianity 101 today. Hey, let's get everybody saved. And then they get saved, and we're like, okay, fend for yourself. Who cares about discipleship? And we get the results that we have today. Yeah, we should care about discipleship. Paul cared very much about discipleship. And Paul had a young man that was certainly up to the task. Titus was not just a, a companion of Paul's because he loved the gospel. Titus was a very apt companion of Paul because Titus was very well read. 
He was very sharp. He knew a multiple of languages. Basically, he and Paul were two peas in a pod. And that's why Paul used them all over the place. Hey, I need somebody to go to, you know, the Corinth to take this letter. Hit it, Titus, right? I need somebody to take this letter over here, letter over there. He'd he'd send Titus because Titus was his right-hand man. Titus was as much like Paul as Paul had. Titus was very, very able in the scriptures. He was very, very able in doctrine. He was very, very able in, in, frankly, in education and in rhetoric. He was a very, very good speaker. He was a very persuasive speaker. And so they got along like peas and carrots. Now, they were there at Fairhaven for roughly three weeks. Here's what's cool right here, Gortania. This is where we think the first Christian, basically the first Christian church came out of Crete, and it was around 60 A.D. So basically right after they stop in Fairhaven, all of a sudden for some unknown reason, we get a Christian community popping up. And guess who was the first overseer of that? Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, buddy. They're there. They get to talking to people. People get saved. And then Paul says, what are we going to do? Right? It, this is an island. It's not like you can just you know, send a letter down the road and say, hey, man, walk over here. What are we going to do with these new Christians? Bring me another slide, if you would, please, sir. So this is what Paul says. That's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order what remained. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's going to be no easy task. You will notice something about Titus. Titus, a Jewish name? No, it is not. It's a Greek name. Titus was not a Jew. Titus did not have a Jewish name. Titus did not come from a Jewish lineage or background. And by the way, in Jewish culture at that time, that was a big deal. Some of those Jews could trace their lineage back for, I mean, generations and generations and generations. And that was a big deal. Who'd you come from? And Titus couldn't do that. And guess what else there was about Titus? Titus wasn't even circumcised. Titus was, from the the eyes of man, the exact wrong person for the job. There's no way Jewish communities who have now have born-again believers in them can accept this guy, this Greek guy who knows Greek learning, who speaks Greek well, who has a Greek name from a Greek background, and by the way, he's not even circumcised. At least Timothy even was circumcised. This guy hasn't even... What does he know about the culture of this Messiah? And Paul says, you're the man for the job. How about that? I think there's some wisdom in that. I think Paul knew, you know what Titus will do? He'll tell him the truth. You know what he won't do? He won't pander. He's not going to pander to try to be accepted by the culture. He can't be. There's some wisdom in that. You know what we do sometimes? We pander. I want people to like me. So I'll preach this certain way and I'll teach this certain way and I'll act this certain way because my end goal is not really to give the whole counsel of God. My end goal is to be thought of well by the people the fear of man because my end goal is someday hey i'll be the youth pastor so someday i can be the college pastor so someday i can be the senior pastor so that someday i can be in charge of this whole as if the body of christ was a corporation built with stepping stones one more titus says uh, paul says this to titus one of the cretans a prophet of their own said cretans are always liars evil beasts lazy gluttons this testimony is true I'm going to read that again because 
I think you find that offensive. And I think there are many of you, when you read that, you go, that, that can't be right. That can't, can't, can't be right. God would inspire such words. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. He doesn't name it, by the way, but that comes from Epimenides, which was a 6th century B.C. writer and poet from Crete. This quote was likely well-known and widely known both to Titus and even to people on Crete. In other words, there's a reputation here. The reputation precedes them. Cretan culture was well-known for being dishonest, lazy, immoral, and decadent. It was a culture of giving in to the base desires and impulses of the flesh. I'm sure you've never seen a culture like that before. <laughs> yeah, you bet. If it feels good, do it, right? And if somebody gets mad at you because you did it, just lie and cover it up. Can you see any parallels there? Paul was very well read in uh, classical Greek literature. He did, at least on two other occasions, quote, well-known yet non-scriptural writers to support a biblical point. Uh, in Acts 17:28, uh, even in 1 Corinthians 15:33, uh, when he says, "Do not be deceived; evil company corrupts good character," he's actually quoting uh, a Greek intellectual named um, Menander, and that was a very, very well-known line from one of his plays. That was often said in their culture: "Hey, don't be deceived, right? Bad company corrupts good morals." And Paul's saying, "Yeah, that's exactly right." Okay, that's the culture Titus was ministering to. It's a culture that is a lot like ours, a lot like Corinth, right? All right. Another slide, if you would, sir. Let's break this up. There are eight verses we're going to get through here, and they're basically broken into three sections, all right? The first section is, Titus, this is what you should tell the older men. The next section is, Titus, this is what you should tell the women. The next section is, Titus, this is what you should tell the young men. So we're going to break them up like that. <laughs> Titus 1 through 2 says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, sound in love, and in steadfastness. Wow. Let's continue uh, reading on. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent might be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. I'm going to tell you something. That's eight verses of a very high bar. But it's for good reason. Set the bar low, you'll jump low too. One and two. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The very first thing he mentions. Sound doctrine. That's, we don't care about that. Welcome to America 2017. If a guy's nice, and he's got a big smile, and he tells us nice things, we like him. Well, but he's not very doctrinally sound. Hey, why do you want to fight over that thing? 
You keep acting like it matters. That's not very loving. Doctrine divides. You're right, it does. It is divisive. It divides sheep from goats. It divides error from truth. It divides orthodox from heresy. It divides heretic from elder. It divides shepherd from wolf. Do you understand? Yes, doctrine's divisive. You're right, it is. And it's also incredibly important because it's the difference between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. Yeah, doctrine's important. It's so important that it's the first thing listed. As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, right? Dignified. I want to talk about that word because it's not what we normally perceive it to be. In our culture, someone is dignified if they're very wealthy, if they're well-known, if they're a mover and shaker, if they're kind of in charge of the cards of the, of the social ladder. We say they're dignified. That's not what this word is talking about. Dignified, it's from the Greek semnos. It means respectable or to be esteemed for noble character, to be honorable, to be trustworthy, to have integrity. What should these men be? They should be respectable. They should be known for their character. They should be honorable. They should be trustworthy. They should have integrity. Very next piece, self-controlled. You'll notice something as we go through here. That is the same word. It's a two-word phrase in English, but it's the same word that's told to all three groups. Hey, older men, be self-controlled. Women, be self-controlled. Young men, be self-controlled. It's as if he's trying to get something across to us here. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. It seems like there's something that's being repeated here. That they are sound in faith. That means to be sound in doctrine or sound in the things that you think about your faith. Theology matters. And it matters a lot. To be sound in love. What in the world would it mean to be sound in love? How selfish do we live? What is love? Let me boil it down to you. I'll just, you, can, you can read 1 Corinthians 13, right? You can read all the way there. You can read what love is, and there's a lot of different characteristics, but it can be boiled down to this. It's selfless. Love is selfless. And we are, by base nature, selfish. That's, that's all there is to it. We're selfish people. We're selfish creatures. I want what I want. I want what I want, how I want it. And I want what I want, how I want it, when I want it, and in the manner I want it. And I'm a black belt at justifying why I should get it. Welcome to the sin nature. They should be sound in love, though, and in steadfastness. Steadfastness. Hupomone. That's the Greek word. Hupomone, which means perseverance. It's the characteristic of a man not swerved or not swaying from his loyalty to his faith, even by great trials or sufferings. This tells me something. Not a novice. Why did Paul say... An elder couldn't be a novice because he needed to be steadfast. He needed to have hupomone. He needed to be someone that we can watch over a period of time and say, this guy is going to live out his Christianity in the good times and the bad times. He's going to live it out when it's easy. He's going to live it out when it's tough. That's not to say he's a perfect man or a perfect Christian, but he is fully committed. Does that make sense? 
He's not turning back. Go on down if you would, please. Oh, keep going. Keep going. Ah, very good. Second section to the ladies. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers nor slaves to much wine. They're to teach what's good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Train the young... Train the young women. Train the young women. Train them. It's as if we're talking about discipleship again. You know, that thing that we don't do much of here in America. I know I'm going to be beaten on a drum, and it sounds like I'm just throwing the whip out there. But the truth is, we do not value discipleship the way we should. We don't. We have someone come to church and we, we preach the gospel to them and they get born again and we're like, all right, hooray, right? Let's dance. Let's have a, a party. And we should. And then that's it. Now, now what do I do? Well, you know, read your Bible and, and come to church on Sundays, you know, and, and grow in the Lord. That's not discipleship. Jesus didn't say that to his disciples, right? How did Jesus disciple Lehi hara, Hebrew, what's it mean? Come follow me. Get in my life, brother. Come with me. See how I do things. Walk through life with me. I hate this phrase, but it's, it's a really good phrase to explain this. You ready for this? Do life together. You heard that? You got to do life together. Because I, I don't know what that, that means so many different things in so many different contexts now. But that's the truth. That's what we should be doing as Christians. Let me tell you something. When I ask you, who mentored you? You ought to be able to tell me. Who did you ask to mentor you? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't really know. Well, then, why not? Who are you mentoring? Who are you training to walk like Christ? We, we want to be intentional about everything except discipleship. And I'm going to tell you something. It's probably the thing that we have to be the most intentional thing about. We must be intentional about discipling. And we must be intentional about being discipled. I can tell you there are two men that I have been truly discipled by. And there are two others that I can think of that had I been in the same general vicinity, they would have been. That was a very intentional process. I literally had lunch with one guy. I was in Texas, and I called this guy up. He'd been a pastor for 15 years. John Hall. You guys know John Hall. I called him up, and I said, would you meet with me for breakfast? I'll buy breakfast. Sure. We meet for breakfast on a Saturday morning, and I said, look, make a long story short, here's the deal. Uh, I need to be mentored. And if I was back in Oklahoma, I would have Ronnie Qualls, I would have Justin Wright, I would have these people around me, and I'm not. And my dad, whom I just kind of started forming a relationship with, is gone. There, who, who's the man that I call? Who's the older man that I call to ask life questions to? And this guy is, that was an awkward conversation. It makes you very vulnerable to say something like that to another man. No, probably not as much for girls, you know, but guys do not typically hold hands with each other, go to the bathroom together. So there's some, you know, 
there's some social uncouth to just being that open and vulnerable. But I asked him that. I said, I would, I would like basically for you to disciple me. And he was, you know, he's really flattered. He said, well, I'm flattered. I'll, I'll, I'm certain, certainly do it. I think most Christian men would respond that way. I really do. I think most Christian men, older men, if a young man, like myself, I was 32 at the time, I guess, 30, 31, 32, at the time when I said this, but I think most Christian men would respond the same way. I do. But we know everything. It's true. Every 22-year-old Christian knows everything in the world. That's why they've got a blog. have got to teach the world what I know. got to put it out there. You people obviously don't know much, and I know it all. Maybe we should consider doing some discipleship first. Man, that's, that's rough, isn't it? I don't mean that to come out that sarcastic. Wow. Man. I really do love you, I promise. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Here, let me, let me rephrase this. I'm going to give you the American version. Train the young women to love their careers over everything and have husbands and children if they can. Well, that hurts. To be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home. Don't read that one. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. Anybody got a marker? Let's take it out. Erase that out of the Bible. We live in a culture that that's a dirty... Submission is a dirty word in our culture. In any context, submission is a dirty word. I don't have to submit to anybody. I'm American. Right? Submission's a dirty word. I don't have to submit. I ain't got to submit to my boss. I ain't got to submit to, to my governor. I ain't got to submit to the police. I don't have to submit to the judge. And I sure ain't going to submit to that man in my house. That's the attitude that some of us have. And frankly, that's an attitude that I have seen. Obviously, that's hyperbolic. But that's an attitude that I've seen even within Christendom. And that's sad. Why is it sad? Because the Word of God is reviled because of it. Why should you be that way? So that the Word of God might not be reviled. Slide, please. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Can I give you two areas, gents, young men? Hubris and sexual purity. Hubris and sexual purity. I won't even look into every other area of your life. Can I just look at those? Where are you on that? What's hubris? Hubris is arrogant overconfidence. Right? I'm, I mean, I'll tell you this. Boy, when I was a young man, I didn't have any of that. Full of it. Absolutely. Full of hubris. You remember the story of Icarus? By the way, that came from the island of Crete. Y'all remember the... the let me tell you this story real quick. Icarus's dad, and I don't remember if his... Daedalon, Daedalus? Yeah, Daedalus. Icarus's dad was this great engineer, and he had created the labyrinth, so the story goes. And 
They eventually were really suffering persecution. So, so Dela says, look, here's what we're going to do, son. We're going to make wings out of wax and feathers. And they make these wings, and they say, we're going to fly off of this island. And they take flight, right? And Dad tells Icarus, Icarus, you've got to be careful with these wings. If you fly too low, the, the salty spray of the, of the ocean will get in and clog up the wings, and you won't be able to fly. But if you fly too high, you'll get too close to the sun, and the wax will melt, and, and the wings will fall apart. And, and you'll plummet below. <clears throat> and Icarus, like most young men, knows better. And he thinks, you know, you're just telling me that because you're not as strong as I am and you can't fly as high as I can. Watch this. And so he flies up really high, and the wings melt, and he plummets to the sea, and he drowns, and he dies. And that was a well-known tale in Greek culture to warn you of the dangers of hubris. Now listen, young men, Let me tell you what the danger is in your spiritual life when it comes to hubris. It makes you think you're a lot stronger than you are. And, by golly, since you have it all together, you won't open up or admit with the struggles that you're having. Because if I admit to someone else that I'm struggling with this, they'll think I'm not really this incredibly great Christian guy. And so instead of being able to have someone walk with you through it, and help you overcome that area of sin, you will struggle with it for years and years and years and years. Lust and sexual purity. Does your love life look like the rest of the world? We live in a day and age when fornication seems it's okay. Ah, God just winks at us. No big deal. Well, I really love her. We're going to be married one day anyway, so what does it matter? Well, it matters because God says so. It matters because it shows whether you really fear the Lord or not. It matters because it shows whether you really revere God's word or not. It matters because it decimates the design that God has for marriage. It matters more than you can possibly imagine, and yet you want to trivialize it. We do. That's the culture we live in. We're married in our hearts, so it's okay. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity. Show dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent might be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of us. Can I throw something out here to you? There are things that we can do that are lawful. They are. They're okay for us to say. They're okay for us to do. But they hurt others when we do them. Remember when Paul said all these things are lawful, but not everything's helpful? Well, the same can be said with our speech. There are times, there are really, there truly are, there are times where we need to be confrontational. But you know what? There's also times when we need to not be confrontational and we need to be loving. And I'm not telling you that I'm an expert in that. I'm not. I'm not telling you that. But I am saying this. There's a kind of speech that you can engage in because you love Mark Driscoll so much that can be condemned, that can bring your reputation into disrepute, and it served you no purpose. There's kinds of jokes that you can tell that are funny and they get a lot of laughs, 
but they don't do much for your witness. You ever been there? I have. Yeah. There are kinds of conversations you can engage in that are at the improper place at the improper time, and they damage your witness. They do. Is it lawful for me to drink? Yes. It would be lawful for me to go get a six-pack of beer every night. I could do that and not be sinning. Will that bring my reputation into disrepute? Probably so. Guess why I don't? It has nothing to do with me being able to. Yes, I can. But there are certain people that I work with. There are kids, for example, whom I work with who would not be willing to let me speak into their lives simply because they they said that. It's true. So guess what I do? I don't want to necessarily give up certain Christian liberties for the sake of preaching the gospel, but guess what? I do. Guess what Paul did? Same thing. If it offends my brother to eat meat, I will never again eat meat. That is a tough saying. That's tough. I know there's balance there, but I'm telling you right now, we have the propensity to push for our liberties at the expense of our witness. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself to be a model of good works. Good works. That In your teaching, you'd show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say about us. I hope that will be the I hope that will be the witness of, of us, of our church, of the people here. I hope that the, the witness that we put out is that we're serious about Christ. We're serious about God's word, and we're serious about living a life that glorifies him, even at the expense of ourselves. That we're serious about loving God's people, even when it means I'm sacrificing of myself. I hope that becomes our reputation. I'm serious about using the things God's given me for others. I'm serious about using my money for others. I'm serious about using my time for others. I'm serious about using the things that God has given me and granted me in his grace for the kingdom of God rather than heaping them on myself. I was part of a Word of Faith church. I was part of the Word of Faith movement for uh, almost eight years. And I think that was probably the most reprehensible thing that I got my, my jaws locked on when I was there. I was seeing people who are willing to take heaps and gobs of monies, throw it on themselves when there are other Christians in their very congregations who are in desperate need, dire need, and they're not willing. I'd help you, brother, but I got that Corvette payment. <laughs> okay. We have to train ourselves to think differently. The culture that we live in does not think according to Christ. And we are going to have to train ourselves to think and live against that culture. And I am not telling you that I am the perfect model of that, because I promise you, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize there's there are parts of the culture, there are parts of darkness that are in me that I didn't even know about. 
And little by little, God exposes them to me, one by one. I want you to get rid of this. I want you to get rid of this. I want you to get rid of this. That's the process of sanctification. Now, here's my question, and I'm going to leave you with this. Wow, we're going to be done early, aren't we? I'm willing to bet that today, while I was up here preaching to you, the Holy Spirit was probably working on your heart about something, some area, some area where he's telling you, I want you to surrender that to me. I want to get this out of you. My exhortation to you is this. If the Holy Spirit is, is doing that, he's laying that on your heart, he's not doing that to hurt you. He's doing that to make you more like Christ. He's doing that to love others through you. Would you listen to him today? When the Apostle Paul was knocked off of his horse, the Lord said to him, Paul, Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads. That was his way of saying, I have been pushing you in your conscience, and you've been pushing against me. I've been pricking your conscience, and you've been trying to push it away. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The Holy Spirit is probably pricking your conscience about something or some things. And I'm saying this. Listen to him today. Be willing to listen to him today, to do business with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I admit that there are times I don't like it because it convicts me. There are times that I kick against it because it frustrates me. There are times I kick against it because I don't want to lay down and die. And you, unless, unless a kernel of wheat falls, and they're much. Fun.